Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. One of the breakout stars of The Mandalorian, uh, which is available on Disney+, Plus, is Baby Yoda. If you haven't seen the show, you've most likely seen memes of him uh, or various images across the internet. Uh, but one thing you may not know about Baby Yoda is, uh, in a way, he is very similar to Louis Vuitton and the shingles vaccine drug Shindrix. Uh, these are very different products from Disney, uh, LVMH, and GlaxoSmithKline, respectively, without a doubt. Uh, but they are similar in that they are categorized as intangible assets. So Baby Yoda uh, is as much of an intangible asset uh, as Louis Vuitton. Uh, and on today's podcast, I'm joined by Grady Burkett, Portfolio Manager at Diamond Hill Capital Management, to discuss intangible assets, their impact on a company's financial valuation. Thank you and enjoy. Grady, thanks for joining me today. Intangible assets, as I mentioned in the intro, are defined as a non-monetary asset without physical substance. But there's a lot more to this important class of assets that can't be captured you know, in a simple seven-word definition. So in the introduction to the podcast, I referenced some real-world examples like Baby Yoda, for instance, uh, that you outlined in your paper. But, you know, can you provide a, a more in-depth explanation of what encompasses intangible assets? Sure. Thanks, Doug. Uh, we can broadly categorize a company's assets as either tangible or intangible. So tangible assets are physical things that a company owns. They're inventories, production sites, retail stores, things like this. And every business, of course, needs some physical assets to run its operations. And we can usually have a pretty good idea of the ongoing cost, the valuation of these physical assets uh, by looking at a company's balance sheets. So, for example, uh, Samsung Electronics, which is the largest uh, memory manufacturer in the world, uh, the company invests billions uh, every year to build and maintain its uh, physical plant to develop uh, semiconductors. Uh, so let's say that Samsung announces it will spend, uh, say, $10 billion to build a new fabrication facility. So we'll see $10 billion in capital expenditures associated with this new plant come into Samsung's cash flow statement as a cash outflow. And we'll also see $10 billion in long-term assets uh, entered on Samsung's balance sheet under property plan and equipment. Over time, the accounting value of this asset declines. And this decline is accounted for with depreciation schedules associated with the various equipment and, and, and facilities. And we'll see that run through Samsung's uh, income statement over time. Um, now, as investors trying to value Samsung, uh, that, that's interesting, but we're actually more interested in the net present value of future cash flows associated by the, that this plant will generate over time. And uh, this is the intrinsic value of the plant, and it can be completely different from the accounting value of the plant. Um, obviously, unfortunately, calculating intrinsic value is, is not quite as straightforward. We're, we're dealing with forecasting, and forecasting is inherently hard and, and imprecise. But nevertheless, as intrinsic value investors, that's what we really want to know. So in a similar way, intangible assets have both accounting value and intrinsic value. Uh, the main difference and, and, and the primary difference for our conversation is that intangible assets just aren't physical in nature. Um, so important examples of intangible assets include brands, patents, copyrights, licenses, um, proprietary process knowledge is an intangible asset. You know, we can also think of things like customer data, supplier relationships, market knowledge, and process knowledge. 
Um, if we really want to extend, we can arguably extend the, 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 the category of intangible assets to include things like corporate culture, um, organizational reputation, things like this. And it really depends on what we're trying to analyze and achieve as we think through intangible assets. But going back to Samsung, the firm currently shows that it has about $250 billion in gross PP property plan and equipment on its balance sheet. And this just reflects the massive amount of investment Samsung makes into actual physical plant to develop semiconductors. Um, however, the company also states that it has about $8 billion in intangible assets on its balance sheet. And so even a company that operates in a capital-intensive industry will have some intangible assets identifiable on its balance sheet. Um, and even with Samsung, I'd argue that the actual value of its intangible assets are worth much more than $8 billion. You and I couldn't simply plop down $100 billion <laughs> um, and buy the latest and greatest semiconductor manufacturing equipment and start competing with Samsung. Uh, we need to develop deep supplier relationships. We need a lot of process knowledge. We need to develop customer trust. We need technology roadmaps and all these things. And these are the intangible that Samsung has that makes it very difficult for a new entrant to just come into the industry and compete with that business. As investors, we want to focus our efforts on identifying the intangible assets that are the key value drivers and try to understand how sustainable these assets are. Um, in some cases, we can actually identify a stream of cash flows and attach it to an intangible asset, and that's great. But in other cases, the intangible asset does enhance the, corporate, the value of the business, um, but we can't really attach a stream of, of, of cash flows to that, to that particular asset or set of assets. So that's interesting that you mention all of that with Samsung especially because, again, I think of, and this is my layman's way of thinking about it, intangible asset, brand, uh, Marvel characters, intellectual property. With Samsung, what you're talking about, it sounds like, is just the fact that they've been around for a very long time and they've got these connections and this industry reputation. Is that what their intangible assets would be? And how does your evaluation of that differ from some guy across the street that's trying to value it as well? That's exactly right. And that's important to understand. I mean, right now, capital is obviously cheap. And so if it's an industry where the only advantage the company has is that it's invested a lot of capital, that may not be a sustainable advantage. Um, for a company like Samsung, if you think about Apple, for example, as a customer of Samsung's memory uh, chips, what matters most to Apple is they get high-quality memory chips at volume when they need them. And so that is something that you and I as a new entrant couldn't just come in and convince Apple to start buying our memory chips. There, there is an example right now. If, if you're a rational investor, you wouldn't even try to lay down $200 billion to compete with Samsung in memory. It's a highly consolidated industry. They can flex pricing as they want. They could simply squeeze you out of the market very quickly. Um, but there are irrational like strategic or, or investors who are want to be in this industry for strategic reasons, and the government of China is a great example of that. They are investing billions and billions of dollars to try to build up a memory industry, the ability to manufacture memory chips, high-quality memory chips, and it's taking them a long time, and they're having a very hard time doing it at the high end. And this just is a reflection of how hard it is to develop the process know-how, bring together all the people that you need, get the, the customer trust, just the supply chains, all of it is extremely difficult. And so that's, these are just intangibles, um, not to mention the patents and the actual things that you can go and read and see filings right. of. But these are some of the intangibles that you know, an organization has that it's hard for a new entrant to come in and replicate. So one of the examples I mean, that you use uh, in the paper is Unilever. Great example of the impact of intangible assets with recognizable brands such as Dove, Limpton, and, and Briars. 
uh, but with a portfolio of brands that includes roughly 400 brands globally. In 2018, the company ascribed you know, 12 billion euros in value to intangible assets while allotting 10 billion euros in value to its property, plants, and equipment or tangible assets. So essentially, more value in the things that you can't really quantify than, than the hard assets that they had. For the layman, valuing the intangible over the tangible seems like a, a mistake, but you argue that the intangible is undervalued. So can you walk me through your thought process on that? First, we have to agree that Unilever's balance sheet dramatically understates the intrinsic value of the, of, of the business. And so, you know, when we look at the balance sheet, when we look at the assets on the balance sheet, as you mentioned, there's $10 billion in PP&E, there's $12 billion uh, worth of intangibles. There's another $17 billion of goodwill. And really, networking capital, it nets out to about zero. So really, effectively, including goodwill, we have about four, a little under $40 billion in asset value in the balance sheet. Um, if we exclude goodwill, which is really just an accounting plug, mm -hmm. uh, we have about 22 or $23 billion of, of long-term asset value, kind of key asset, key value driving asset value on the balance sheet. Now, Unilever generated over $6 billion in free cash flow over the last few years. And so really, when we look at that, if we could actually pick up the assets of, buy the assets of Unilever uh, for 22 or $23 billion and generate a six plus billion dollar cash flow, that's almost a 30% cash return on our investment with like a four year payback period. And like, I remember in 2009, you could find, maybe find some things like that <laughs> if, you had a, if you had a strong stomach, but yeah. certainly not for, not for a business like Unilever. And certainly those days are long past. You're just not finding returns like that. So we know, we know the value of these assets are understated on the balance sheet. I mean, the market's telling us that as well. The, the, the current enterprise value of the company, when looking at the market equity value, is around 160 billion uh, euro. And our intrinsic value is act estimate is actually a little bit higher than that. So, so I, I think we can agree that the, assets are under, the asset values are understated on the balance sheet. So then we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, where is the understatement happening? Is it happening in the physical plant or is it happening in this, these intangible assets? And I think that if you think about which asset you would want to buy, let's say you could buy one or the other, and you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy the, you know, which one would you choose? And you say, well, let's buy the physical plant. What do we have? Well, we have a bunch of warehouses. We have a bunch of distribution facilities. We have a lot of trucks everywhere. We have a lot of manufacturing capacity. We have sales offices. But we don't have any product to sell to the end customer. And so we have all of this physical stuff, but we have no products. Well, how do we convince customers to buy our products? Well, end customers have to want to, want to use our products. Right. So Walmart will only buy soap from us if they know that end customers will pick up that soap on the shelves and go to the register and pay for it. And unfortunately, we have no brand awareness. No one knows who we are. They have no reason to buy our products. And so I think once we make this investment in this physical plant, we've got a long, long road ahead of us before we can actually develop out the product set that we need to fulfill the capacity and, and, and be competitive in the, in the highly competitive consumer product space uh, industry. And so now let's look at the other side and we buy these intangible assets. So we've bought 400, like you mentioned, a, a collection of 400 different brands. Uh, we've bought relationships with all these customers. We bought all the data that we need to know about the end markets. We have uh, all, of the, all of the patents around, the, uh, around making the, the, the products. And 
what we don't have is manufacturing capacity. Well, manufacturing capacity is a pure commodity. Right. We also don't have distribution. Well, distribution is also is, a, is another commodity. I mean, most distributors earn pretty low returns on capital. Most basic manufacturing, contract manufacturing plants own uh, generate really low returns on capital. And so I would argue we actually have a very easy time because we have all these brands to get up and running and have a very successful uh, consumer packaged products good uh, firm uh, if we just own these brands. And so I think that when you look at it, you know, if you're thinking, okay, which do I want to own? I think we absolutely want to own these intangible assets. And then again, it gets back to what type of return should we be able to generate on this on this initial investment? Um, I think twelve billion dollars to buy all of these brands is it would just be such a fantastic deal. Right. Um, so I think the value of these brands are dramatically understated. Yeah, and it's it's the idea that you know whenever I go to the store, I buy and for this example with Unilever, I buy Dove soap, and so I know that soap. I don't know who the manufacturer is. I don't know how it got there. Yeah. But it's the value of just that that consumer buy-in. That, exactly. That's what I always use. So yeah, it definitely seems like the intangible is is undervalued, and, and very difficult to value. Yeah, because it, it's it's just this unknown, but kind of known because you know that clients use it, and you know that there's a market for it, but it's hard to kind of put a number on it. Exactly. And by the way, when you're negotiating as as Unilever with with Walmart, you can go to them with all of this buying purchasing data that they have, and you can say, look, we know that when we put this soap on the shelf, we know exactly roughly how much we'll sell. Right. And if you and I go in with you know uh, Grady's soap bars. <laughs> um, we have absolutely no leverage to negotiate with Walmart to get shelf space on their shelves. So it's just a completely, so these, the, these brands are just so critical to have um, to be competitive in these markets. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating when you, when you drill down to it. So um, let's talk about some other types of intangible assets. Unilever outlines brands. And, you know, we talked about the 400 global brands and, and the recognition value. Another type of intangible asset would be a patent on drugs. You know, you use Novartis in the paper as an example. How does one evaluate the value of a drug patent, knowing that the patient population can change over time, patents can expire, you know, cures can be found? You know, how do you try to value that? Yeah, so forecasting is hard, and I don't want to <laughs> understate how difficult it is, um, and we're never going to be accurate. Uh, that said, we, we, we can try to be better than average, and the way we can try to do that is by digging in deeper uh, into the drugs that are the key value drivers for the firms. We don't need to know every single thing about every drug that a firm manufactures, but we want to look at the key value drivers and understand those as well as we can. Now, we're fortunate at Diamond Hill to have a dedicated expert, Chindor, um, who looks very closely at these, at these drugs um, for Novartis and, and, and all the pharmaceutical firms that we own in, in the international portfolio. Um, but at the basic level, uh, it really comes down to trying to make uh, better predictions on price and volume, just like any other you know, revenue forecast mm -hmm. you'd build. Uh, for price, you're right. Uh, we have to look at pricing before the patent expires and after the patent expires. Prior to patent expiration, like in the industry, we have to look at the current state of competition. Mm -hmm. We have to look at customer reception or the drug efficacy and, and how easy it is to use and how, how likely doctors are to prescribe it. And we have to watch out for potential substitutes to the drug. Uh, as far as volume, uh, we can estimate how large the potential patient population is based on current disease data, and then we can make assumptions about what percent of the population will actually use the drug. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we have to look out for label extensions because a lot of times these companies will find other ways to use a drug and other patient populations that can benefit from a particular drug. 
Now, after the patent expires, um, then we have to think about things like how fast will doctors migrate over to the generic options that are available. Um, so for complex chronic diseases, that migration can be pretty slow because doctors might not want to move a patient from something that works onto something that's new, even if the new thing is cheaper. Right. Um, but there's going to be pricing pressure regardless, and it's going to be a pretty decent, pretty dramatic decline in cash flow that we have to, we have to forecast when, the, when we expect the patents to expire. Um, I did want to bring up another thing about about pharmaceutical companies is that things can also surprise you. They can really come out of left field. Um, so, for instance, Novartis, um, right now it's dealing with some regulatory issues surrounding um, its recently acquired spinal muscular atrophy drug called Zolgensma. Um, they bought a Novartis bought a company called Avexis. They paid a very healthy price for it, and they got this really cool drug um, because it's an innovative gene therapy and it has very strong potential in treating young children with this spinal muscular atrophy disease, which is deadly. We do think the regulatory issues are temporary, um, but we certainly didn't see them coming mm -hmm. in, in, until we read about them like everyone else had to. And frankly, right now for me, it's, it's, it's an open question that nags at my mind on how this is going to resolve itself because they, they, they paid a nice price for this to, to acquire this gene therapy platform. It's a pretty new type of uh, therapy. Um, and it's a pretty important drug for them. Now, on the positive side, we can also get positive surprises. Right. And GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, Shingrix vaccine is a good example of that. Um, we knew it was going to be successful, um, but it's meaningfully outperformed our expectations. So about two years ago, the CDC issued a statement uh, recommending that people over 50 get a Shingrix vaccine. Now, specifically the Shingrix vaccine oh, wow. uh, for shingles, right? So it's pretty unusual for the CDC to actually validate a specific drug um, from a specific manufacturer. Um, so that unexpected event led to just rapid demand growth in the U.S., and it was so much so that the company really had difficulty fulfilling demand for a good period of time. Um, but now in the most recent quarter, uh, Shingrix sales were up 75% year over year, Ooh. It's on track to do about $2 billion in pounds uh, from the Shingrix vaccine alone this year. And this has just been a lot stronger than, than we expected. And frankly, I think that anyone in the market expected. Obviously, the company itself, well, sure. uh, given that they ha didn't have capacity. So you can get positive surprises and negative surprises. But I think for me, the key takeaway of pharmaceutical companies is we want to own pharmaceutical companies that have good, good track records of innovation and acquisitions. We want them to have a relatively broad product portfolio of and, and a good mix of stuff that's generating cash flow now, stuff that should be approved. We think it'll be approved in the next five years or so. And then also some long range stuff that hopefully we'll be able to generate cash flow as well into the future. So we've talked uh, brand, we've talked drug patents. Um, so let's look at, you know, some of the copyrights or trademarks, which is the other category of intangible assets that you referenced in your paper. Um, the, the most recognizable intangible asset from the copyright or trademark standpoint that I can think of is, is Disney. You know, iconic characters like Mickey Mouse, culturally impactful storylines like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars, you know, permeate our culture beyond the financial impact to the firm. Uh, you know, we can look at the price that Disney paid for Marvel Entertainment, which was, you know, about four and a quarter billion dollars. You know, but you have to look beyond that price tag to understand the impact. You know, there's the obvious benefit from the movies and their revenue, but there's also the product tie-ins, the theme park additions, 
How difficult is it to measure the worth of something like the Marvel purchase or the purchase of Lucasfilms, which I know this isn't your area of expertise, but just from the intangible aspect of it, how can you value that? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult uh, to try to dig in, especially when you consider all of the ways Disney can monetize a newly acquired asset. And especially as, as Disney looks to grow more internationally, and especially as it launches a streaming service and a direct-to-consumer relationship. I mean, this really is going to make some of these assets that Disney brings in, it's going to be really interesting um, how well they can grow some of these new assets. Um, and, 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 and the way I look at these types of acquisition is that they just feed into our confidence level mm-hmm. um, around our terminal value for Disney. Um, because it's all these well-known characters, uh, whether they're created in-house or acquired, that really feed into Disney's television, uh, movies business, its merchandise, its theme parks businesses, um, and as well as the new streaming business that's going to be really important for Disney. Um, so these iconic characters are the source of Disney's competitive advantage. Um, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, our media analyst, Kavi, um, was sharing with the research team some of his early thoughts on the announcements and the news flow that Disney was going to actually launch a, a streaming service. And, you know, there was some debate out in the marketplace and internally on whether Disney should do this and what it means for them. Um, because, you know, there was the risk that they were going to cannibalize their cable business. Right. They were going to give up some licensing revenue to Netflix and these other companies potentially. And we really were still learning about kind of how this was going to shake out. And we still are, but that was very early. And I remember Chris Bingaman, who you recently interviewed, our long short co-port portfolio manager, mm-hmm. um, he observed the fact that, hey, if Disney's management team is willing to do this and take this step, it probably suggests that they believe they have pretty strong, you know, pretty strong cards to play in this in this industry. I think that's what, um, you know, people can. I mean, distribution, you know, distribution is not easy. But if you own really strong tie ins to to a segment of the consumer population, which clearly Disney does, and you own this strong portfolio of 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 characters, products, however you want to view it, that people really want to consume and are really attached to, I think you can figure out distribution. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that was an interesting statement that Chris made. It was an interesting observation. And 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 frankly, it, it created for, for investors who were willing to look past kind of the the, the, the concerns about cord cutting and, and, and what was going on with ESPN, which were val- are very valid concerns, they were able to get Disney at a really attractive valuation um, 18 months ago, 24, yeah. 18 months ago. Um, you know, the valuation is certainly not nearly as compelling today as it was then. But, uh, but th- these are times when you just got, you kind of have to look past some of the headline news and really think about the core intellectual property of the business, that a business owns. Yeah, and that's part of the, you know, the example of consumer trust. We talked about that a little bit with Dove and that, you know, if I'm buying soap, I'm going to go buy Dove. And, yeah. you know, no matter who's delivering it to me, I'm going to go buy it. And it's kind of the same thing, I think, with Disney. Anyone that has kids under the age of 10 and can afford it will most likely be getting Disney+. Plus. I mean, my kids are older and they still wanted Disney+, Plus because it just resonates with their childhood and it's stuff they want to see. So I think part of that consumer trust is that intangible asset as well of just, I know I'm going to Disney World, so I know what to expect. It's going to be overpriced food and overpriced drinks, but it's going to be an incredible experience. (laughs) Um, And you get to live that through your kid's eyes. So I think that's another interesting component of that. Um, One other area that you touched on uh, was um, copyrights with music. Um, There's no hard, tangible asset, obviously, you know. Uh, it's just music. Uh, but the rights to musical artists can be worth billions of dollars in revenue to companies like Vivendi through their music label company, Universal Music Group. 
how difficult it is to evaluate something like this. And obviously that's the theme through all of this, the difficulty in evaluating intangible assets. But how do you look at the music industry where trends change on the, you know, the flip of a flip of a dime or a quarter, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 for Universal Music, they they have about 30% of all the songs out there. They own they own rights to so many different artists songs that you couldn't even begin to list them. Um, and the way it's working right now, and they've been fortunate. They kind of walked into a fortunate situation because obviously the revenue for the for the for the uh, labels was declining for a period of time for right. all kinds of reasons. But right now, with streaming, the way it works is every time a song is played, a little tiny, not even a penny, a little bit of money uh, gets put into Universal's pockets if they own rights to that song. Um, and so, you know, what you've got is you've got this just this huge volume of music that's playing on, that's being streamed, and 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 Universal gets a little cut of that. And so we've seen their revenue growth really uh, be very, very strong for the last couple of years. And we're still not at peak industry revenue relative to where it was back in the '90s. Um, but it sure looks like we're on a really good trajectory to, I think, surpass that peak. Because when you think about it, I mean, think about the experience you and I had growing up listening to music. I mean, <laughs> you know, you, I mean, I go back to when I was a little kid and the record players. I oh, mean, yeah. when I was, you know, when I was a little, little kid, they were still playing records. And then we went to see cassettes. Remember the, the Walkman the was the greatest thing ever created. Absolutely. <laughs> the Walkman was fantastic. And you, you could... You had to like fast forward and reverse oh, yeah. it, and, um, and and then you went to the CDs, which was a better experience. But you still you got the five disc changer and put it in the trunk of your car, which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, you got right. the five disc changer. <laughs> Holy cow! Exactly. But um, but now you know it's funny. My kids, they they have every single song ever recorded. Yeah. Uh, when they want it, where they want it, at the tip of their fingers. Um, they can create whatever types of playlists they want. Um, and, you know, for me, it's wonderful because, like, I can mow the lawn and listen to music. I can listen to music. I love music, and I can listen to it anywhere. I can listen to whatever songs I want. Um, and this experience is just so far superior to what we had back in the 80s and 90s. I, I have a hard time seeing how revenue, you know, won't be bigger for the industry. Right. And as long as the, the legal structures stay in place that Universal can capture a piece of this revenue, um, I think they're in a really strong position to continue to, to grow and get a nice valuation on the overall business. Again, we can't, you know, we can't, they, they just uh, signed a new deal with Taylor Swift, and we can't know if Taylor Swift will be as popular over the next 10 years as she was over the last 10 years. Um, but it's that whole big catalog of artists that they have. And what's interesting is the, the discovery, the back catalog, they, you know, they weren't making money off of songs that were made in the 70s and 80s. People just weren't buying C whole CDs. Right. And now they make a little bit of money off of songs that we stream from them. So it's a better user experience for us, and they're able to monetize that a little bit. It's really interesting. Um, the other thing with Universal is we can kind of cheat a little bit, and we can test our valuation assumptions, our intrinsic value estimate for Universal in, in, a, in an actual mark in the market right now. Um, because uh, a ten cent and it led a consortium of investors to 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 agree to acquire a ten percent stake of Universal with an implied enterprise value of thirty billion euros. So you know we've got an intrinsic value estimate. Now we've got a mark in the market. Um, obviously, Universal is a strategic asset for a company like Tencent because Tencent has such broad distribution right. in China. Um, but it's a, it's it's a, it's an interesting example though of like a business who you know the trends looked really tough and bad and. And, and be, because they had this rich collection of intangible assets in, in the form of these, these music copyrights, um, when, when trends turned, they were, they were able to just kind of ride that up wave again. 
um, through no credit of their yeah. own. <laughs> Just by holding on, hey, look yeah. what we found in the closet. <laughs> right, exactly. We'll make exactly. some money off of this. Exactly. So we'll, we'll wrap up with the final question. And you mentioned you loved music. Uh, I'm going to call you out on the fact that you know, in your paper, the sections were, were very cleverly titled after various songs from artists ranging from Genesis to The Who to U2 to In Excess to the Dave Matthews Band. Is this representative of your favorite playlist or is it just something that kind of worked out that way? Yeah, well, like born in 1972, so from Genesis and the Who yeah. when I was little, right? And then In Excess and U2 hit right around when we graduated high school. Yeah. And then Dave Matthews hits in the 90s. And actually, my wife and I just saw him in concert here at Nationwide Arena oh, okay. a couple years ago. So we're still fans of, of Dave. But um, yeah, these are some of the things I like. But to get back to the Universal, it's also cool because... Um, you know, I'll, I'll go drive in the car with, with one of my middle school daughters, and yeah. especially my seventh grader. She's really into music. And just the fact that we can stream now and have things kind of mixed up, we'll hear a new, we'll hear a new song that she loves along with a classic that I yeah. love. And it's just kind of a cool experience that we can kind of have together, listen to music from different eras. And yeah, so. somehow my daughter is a child of the 80s now. <laughs> old 80s Journey. songs come on. Journey. And she's like, she yeah. starts singing it. And I'm like, what? A, how do you know this song? She's like, oh, it's on the radio all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 part of what you were talking about before, where you're opening up this whole area of the 70s, 80s, early 90s, where people weren't going to go out and buy the whole CD, so they didn't get exposure. Now you get exposure to all of this. Exactly. And, of and, course, Universal pockets a little bit every time you hear it. Exactly. And I do think for investors, I mean, this is an example, too. I think intangible assets, I personally think they're going to have growing importance for organizations over the next 20 years. I mean, we're hearing about, you know, Physical assets, there's just a commoditization that's happening in the physical world. And I really think that investors need to stay focused on the intangible assets and think about these intangible assets that a business owns and think about how management team is trying to enhance the value of, his, of its existing portfolio and add intangibles that make, that make sense for the company strategically and economically. Well, Grady, thanks as always for joining me. I appreciate it. Hopefully it was, it was fun. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Doug. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.